we're going to jump in <clears throat> to Genesis. We were in Genesis 3 last week, and we basically, God had given humanity one prohibition. He had given them blessing. He had given them um, a mandate for creation to rule the earth, to fill the earth, to subdue it. And he had uh, put humanity, taken them from out of the dust, the dirt that he created them, the earth from which the animals were also created well as well. He had taken them out and put man, after creating man, put him specifically in this garden setting, this temple setting. Um, <clears throat> and then that's where the action takes place, is in this specific area within this land known as Eden, which is somewhere generally to the uh, east of modern-day Israel-Palestine, but that's as close as we can get in determining where. <clears throat> and so he puts humanity in this garden setting. He gives them everything they need. The text ended uh, that they were naked and they were unafraid. Uh, I mean, excuse me, they were naked and they were unashamed. And things were idyllic. Things were fantastic. They weren't lazy. They weren't, um, uh, lazy is not the right word. They weren't listless or not doing anything. He, he put humanity in the garden to work it, to guard it, and to keep it, as the text says. And so this guarding and keeping of the garden was going to be, was humanity's role. It was the mandate that God gave Adam and then later his wife. And so they were to guard and to keep. They had work to do. They were to expand outward, to fill the earth to multiply, to subdue the earth, and, and to, to have many offspring. And, and that was the plan, okay? The plan was not just Adam and Eve would sit around in a garden eating fruit all day. That's the, that may be a pop notion that some of you have picked up somewhere over the years, but that was not the plan according to the text. The plan according to the text was to spread from Eden, to start within this garden setting, and then to spread out and subdue and to take God's kingdom reign and manifested in the rest of his created land. That's what they were called to do. But before that even gets going, we met the voice of the tempter. And we saw last week that, that this, this figure, and he's introduced as the serpent. He's not introduced as a serpent. So it's not like this was just a normal snake. It's not like people believe snakes used to be able to talk. There's no clue that snakes used to walk around on legs. That's real popular among retellings of Genesis. Nothing in the text says that. Um, there's, no, there's nothing that says this was just your ordinary, typical snake. Okay, this guy, this, whoever this person was, whoever this entity was, rather, he's introduced as Hanahash, the serpent, the serpent. And we, it's just left kind of mysterious, his identity. Later in intertestamental Jewish writings and then in early Christian writings, later we will see the identity of this figure who is now just the serpent. But the serpent, this, this primeval force, using one of the part of the created order, so using maybe using an actual serpent as his mouthpiece or maybe using some other being, we again, we don't want to press for too much literalism in how we're reading these stories. We want to allow for the epic nature. We've talked about this as an epic. We want to allow for the epic, possibly poetic or hyperbolic nature of the text free reign to conjure up images that it will. So we, so again, don't press for literalism in trying to picture all of this in your head. Allow for the grandeur, allow for symbolism, allow for a level of poetic, elevated prose. Allow for all these things and let the text speak on its own terms. 
So this, this serpent uh, basically deceives the woman and um, the man who's right there with her, Adam, just stands by and watches it all happen and does not judge the serpent, does not guard the garden, does not subdue creation, does not exercise dominion over the beasts of the field. All of these things he should have done, his role that God had given him, he doesn't do any of them. And that's why later biblical writers will note, some, some will say, oh, well, sin was all blamed on a woman. And Paul will actually come in in, in 1 Timothy and say, no, no, the woman was deceived she's not the one who the command was originally given to. The command was given to the man. So the woman was deceived by the serpent, yes, and her action did lead into sinfulness among all humanity, but it wasn't until the man accepted it and and joined her in rebellion against the one command God gave. It wasn't until then that you could say sin fully entered into the human picture. Uh, And so we'll see. But uh, we we left off last week around verse six or maybe a little after, but it says when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, the first thing that happens once sin enters into their experience. See, this was the knowledge. This was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the tree of knowledge. We talked about that last week. The idea that that God is anti-knowledge is ridiculous. It was a better way to to capture this is the tree of the experience of good and evil because knowledge connotes um, intimate experience with. That's why the word to know is also the word for to have sex with. Um, to know is the word for to acknowledge. To know is the word for to to uh, live in relationship somehow with something. All of these concepts can be summed up in that word know or knowledge. And so the word knowledge, the, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree of the experience of good and evil. They did not, they may have, they may have known there was such a thing as disobedience, but they didn't know disobedience until they disobeyed. And that's part of the, the primeval mystery of this whole thing is, you know, we have all these questions like, why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why didn't he just not put the tree there? Why did he give them the one, everything was fine. Why didn't he just not put, and philosophers people that go that that talk about what's called theodicy which is like understanding why is there evil in the world basically they point out a couple of things when it comes to this passage that I think are helpful and when we ask why why did god give adam and eve a command knowing that if they broke it that would be death for them and all of their descendants well this gets into the very nature of love and obedience and relationship itself see if you if there's no chance to disobey, then there's no such thing as obedience. There's just doing. Obedience requires there be the ability to disobey. Love requires that there be the ability to not love. See, love is meaningless if it's all you can do. If there's a robot and you program that robot to serve you, 
and to bring you things and to tell you how beautiful you are and to tell you how handsome and strong you are and to sit by you and even like with his little robot arm to rub your shoulders or any of these. I mean, press the analogy as far as you want to go. But if you program all that, you can't say that that robot loves you. There's no relationship there. I mean, there's a there's a physical relationship and there's there, you know, in the barest sense, there might be you relate to it, but there's no actual meaningful relationship between you and this robot you've programmed to affirm you and to serve you. And, and that's how we think we need to think about God and his uh, creation of the world and creation of Adam and Eve and humanity be in relationship with him. There has to be, there had to be the ability for them to not love in order for a loving relationship to exist. You cannot have a loving relationship without the freedom to not love. So if, uh, if a couple is on the desert island, they crash land, like think of the movie uh, Castaway, Tom Hanks, right? Let's say he and one other, let's say his wife or his girlfriend or whoever in the movie had been on the plane with him, and they crash on the desert island. So if you and if, if a husband and a wife are on the desert island together, nobody else is there and they're never getting off of it. And the husband says to the wife, honey, I love you. I love you. I adore you. And I'm going to be faithful to you for the rest of my life. And I will never cheat on you. Well, that's kind of not a very big deal if you're on a desert island. And there's, there, the, the husband can't not cheat on his wife. He, he can't help but to be faithful because there's no one else that he could possibly be unfaithful with. But let's say that same plane crash crashes on like Temptation Island, right? It's surrounded by all these beautiful people and next to nothing running around. Let's say for something, I mean, this is a ridiculous scenario, but to make my point, let's say they crash land there and then the husband says the same thing, honey, I love you. And as long as we're here and forever, I will never cheat on you. I'll always be faithful to you. And he keeps his promise in the midst of all of this temptation, in the midst of all these scantily clad, beautiful women running around trying to seduce him, whatever. And he says, I'm going to be faithful. And he is faithful. Then both he and his wife know that that love is genuine, that that obedience, that that faithfulness is genuine. See, there has to be the ability to not love in order for love to be uh, real in order for love to be meaningful, has to be. Well, God didn't even go to that links. God didn't surround humanity with temptation. God surrounded humanity with abundance and blessing. There was just one thing that they were told, hey, don't do that. Just somewhere in the garden, there's a tree. You know the tree, don't eat from it. Eat everything else. Have all the sex you want, have all the babies you want, eat all the food you want, pet all the animals you want. I mean, God, he didn't really say that part, but that's the idea is he's given them everything and there was just one, the bare minimum in terms of for temptation to exist in order that their love be real and true in their eyes and in his. And they fail. They fail. The one thing that he commands them not to do, they fail. And it's through the voice of the tempter. It's through the voice of evil creeping in and saying, did God really say, surely God didn't say that. Surely you won't die. God's hiding from you. He wants you, he doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows if you do, you're going to be like him. Well, 
he was true in that regard. They are, they do become like God. Their eyes were opened, but now they knew good and evil, not mentally and intellectually, but they knew good and evil experientially because they experienced evil. They gave the authority over all creation that they should have exercised. They handed it over to one of the beasts of the field, the, the, the serpent, the Nachash in this case. And for whatever reason, we have all these questions. You know, we, we, why couldn't, why didn't they just grab the snake and throw him out of the garden or, or, or take a rock and just smack his head? Or why didn't they run away? Or why didn't they call out on God and say, God, the snake's saying this, but you told us this, which is, you know, why didn't they do it? Again, we have all these questions. The text does not give us answers to those. It's just giving us the bare minimum to give us the origin, basically answering, is this world bad or good? Well, the world is good. It's created good. Is God bad or good? Well, God's a good God. He created us. He gave the mandate. Are, human, are humans uh, just, um, uh, you know, afterthoughts of the gods like our Babylonian, our Egyptian uh, neighbors tell us? And Genesis says, no, humanity is the crown of creation. They're the image bearers of God. Uh, well, then why isn't the world the way it should be? Why is the world, why is there death? Why is there sorrow? Why is there pain? Why is there futility? Why is there frustration in raising crops and animals and all this kind of stuff that Israelites would have wanted, who had just spent 400 years in slavery, by the way, when they're reading this, why are those things the way they are? And that's what the text tells us. Because at the very beginning, something got off track. At the very beginning, humanity failed to live up to the destiny that God had had created them to embody. And so that's what the, it's ju- the text is just giving us that as a bare bones sketch. It's not answering all the philosophical questions that we have. It's not going into all the geographical or the anthropological details that we want to know about. Again, it's not doing that. It's giving us a flyover, getting us to Abram, the one in chapter 12 who's going to be God's means of putting all of this back on track. Genesis 1 through 11 is telling us what creation is, who God is, who we are, and how things went off the rails. That's what 1 through 11 is in Genesis. And so it it happens here. This is when it happens, chapter 3. So verse 8 the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking about. And, and this is an important word. It's, it's, a, it's a verb that means going about, going back and forth, moving about. As he was walking about in the garden, in the cool of the day. This is a term in the NIV says, in the cool of the day. I pause here because there's a little bit of discussion on what this means. Because you've heard sermons, I've heard so many sermons about how God used to walk around in the breezy afternoon uh, sunset, and he and Adam would walk in the garden together. Well, the text never says God and Adam walked in the garden together, ever. Um, it, it said Adam heard God moving about in the garden. That's all. So I'm sure you've heard great sermons where people talked about walking with God in the breeze of the garden. Well, no, that never happened in the Bible. That's just added to it. The second thing is that phrase, the cool of the day, is a is kind of a guess because the Hebrew text literally says in the Ruach Hayom, in the wind of the day, or wind of the Yom. And so 
interpreters, later translators, took that ruach wind, which is also the word for spirit, and they said, well, this means breeze. And the breezy part of the day in this part of the world, in the ancient Near East, would have been the afternoon or the evening. So when there's an evening breeze, not the hot part of the day, but in the evening when the sun's setting and the temperature's dropping and there's a change in temperature which generates wind and for whatever, I don't know the geophysics behind it. But so they've said, so this is God in the, in the wind of the day, meaning the breeze, the afternoon breeze, the cool of the day. That's where that expression comes from. And that's perfectly plausible. That may very well be what this is saying in this breezy part of the afternoon. It's important to know that that word yom, which we've looked at back in Genesis 1, that is translated as day, one of its meanings, one of the five meanings of yom is storm, like windstorm. And so a couple of interpreters have suggested, and I think there's some merit to this, we can't dismiss this, that actually this should be translated God, they heard the sound of God going about in the wind of the storm. And what that means is not that God was taking an afternoon stroll in the garden, but rather that God was showing up like he did to Elijah when Elijah came to Mount Sinai, like he did to Moses and the Israelites when they came to Mount Sinai, that God is showing up in the wind of the storm, that this is a storm theophany, that this is God coming in judgment, not for an afternoon stroll, but to come and to issue judgment because of what has just happened. I think either of those are plausible. I, I, I see both interpretations. And so we don't want to be, you know, you don't want to hold one really tight fisted. But I, what I don't think is that this is evidence that God and Adam used to just stroll around together in the garden. I, I, the text is not teaching that, that I can see. Um, God is showing up. Adam and his wife get panicked. They get scared because they're ashamed because they're naked and they're ashamed. After sin has entered the picture, nakedness is associated with shame, not with freedom and delight. And so they hide themselves. The man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the, and I just say wind of the day. That's the most literal translation as he was walking in the garden in the wind of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid among the very thing that God had given them to, to bless them. So even the thing that was given for blessing is now uh, part of their shame that they hide behind. There's probably a sermon in there. <clears throat> but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And this is somebody who says, well, why doesn't God know? He's God. He's omnipotent. If you've ever played with kids, you've done this game before. You play hide and go seek with your niece or your nephew or your son or your daughter. And they're like, I'm going to hide, you count. And they go hide and you walk in the room and there's like a foot sticking out from the bed. What do you do? Do you go and just be like, there you are. Duh, I see you, stupid. No, you make a big deal. Where are you? I'm looking for you. And that's, that's without the playfulness. That's something of, of God here, giving the man a chance, asking questions that God, God as God already knows the answer to him. But asking question, giving the man a chance to answer. Where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? This is, again, every parent's done this. Your kid's sitting there with, like, chocolate on their mouth and their hand in the literal cookie jar, and you're like, did you eat that cookie? Mm Mm-mm. Did you eat the cookie? You aren't asking to gather information. You're asking because you want them to confess, yes, I ate the cookie, and to repent or to offer something. You are engaging in a relational act with your child. And it's the same thing that God doing here by asking the man, giving the man a chance to fess up to what's happened. The man said, uh, or verse 11, he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It was such a little kid moment. You, the, the, you, the one you did it, you gave her and I ate and, um, you know, it's like, come on, dude. Seriously, he throws his wife under the bus completely. Like he didn't lie. God had given him his Azer, his suitable companion, fellow deliverer, partner, uh, and she did give him some fruit and he did eat of it. So nothing Adam said was a lie, but we see how pitiful a response it is, just as God would have seen it, because Adam was the one who was commanded. Adam was the one, Adam here, he was the one given the mandate not to eat. It wasn't given to his wife. It was given to him. And so there's a measure of responsibility because of authority over creation. And he fails it utterly. And then he casts blame on God for it. Rather than fess up, rather than just admit, we don't know what would have happened if he had done that. But he shifts the blame two times. The woman who you gave me. So he's like blaming everybody. He's like Mexican standoff with two guns pointed, one at God, one at the woman. The woman that you gave me, back off. It wasn't my fault. You know, it's like he's just doing everything he can to get out of what's painfully obvious to every reader. God doesn't even acknowledge. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman. So God will get back to the man. He's going to go in order. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, she's not lying. The serpent did deceive her. He twisted the truth and she did eat. So everything that she said was factually correct. But once again, instead of confessing and acknowledging guilt, she's shifting the blame. This is a tendency. This is going to be later in the Bible. We're going to read about David and Saul. And David actually, in terms of sins committed, you could make a strong case that David was a worse sinner than Saul. I mean, King Saul was, a sin, was sinful, but David was worse in terms of sinfulness. And so you could make that case that uh, Saul was more righteous than David in terms of just the number of sins or the gravity of sins committed. So why is David always forgiven and Saul is actually removed and cut off from God's people and cut off from the throne? Well, it's a lot of it has to do with when confronted with sin, what was the posture of David and Saul? When Saul is confronted with his sin, he does what the man and the woman do. He shifts the blame always. 
when David is confronted with his sin, he never shifts the blame. He actually confesses it. He laments it. He writes psalms expressing his grief and his sorrow over it. He, he accepts the rebuke and the condemnation of his sin, and he pleads with God. He doesn't deserve God's grace, but he pleads with God to show grace. And, and that's, a, that's a contrast in the character of David and Saul that, that has major implications that in terms of why one is received by God and one is, is condemned by God. And so all the way back here, we see where that tendency came from, that human tendency to when we are, instead of just receiving rebuke and receiving criticism, we want to justify or deflect. And that's what the man and the woman both do. They deflect. So God then, the Lord God turns and says to the serpent, now notice that God doesn't ask the serpent anything. He asks the man, he asks the woman, maybe hoping that either or both would confess. We don't know. Then he turns to the serpent. He doesn't ask it anything. Why? Well, possibly because God knows exactly who this person, this character is that he's dealing with. Possibly he knows that the voice of the tempter is going to have nothing uh, fruitful in this conversation. He is not going to be able to talk his way out of this. That, that this is the moment the man and the woman didn't judge the serpent. And so now God is going to pronounce a judgment. It's just interesting. He doesn't give the serpent a chance to give his side of the story, which lets us know that, well, do with that what you will. I think it's pretty fascinating. But I want to get on because we're about halfway through. So God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, let's pause here. This does not say that this is why snakes don't have legs. This text is not teaching that. Please stop putting that forward into the ether. It's not a biblical claim. I've seen, I have a storybook on my shelf right here, a Bible kids storybook that has the serpent with legs. It's just a snake with legs in this picture crawling around. And no, this doesn't say to crawl on your belly and to eat dust. Snakes don't eat dust. They eat rats and mice. They eat rodents. They eat insects. They don't eat dust. And people in the ancient world knew snakes don't eat dust. This is a this is a, a figure of speech. This is even in English, this is a figure of speech. Any Queen fans out there? Nobody bites dust. What does it mean when you say another one bites the dust? It means another one goes down. It's a it's an expression of defeat. It's an expression of humiliation. It's a dispress, an expression of complete subjugation. It has nothing to do with eating dust and therefore has nothing to do with crawling on belly as opposed to walking about on legs. To crawl on your belly and to eat dust, those are figures of speech used for complete subjugation and humiliation. There are no claims in the text that snakes used to have legs. And I only 
harp on this because it's such a common widespread thing. And then people try to look at ancient fossils and find out at what point did snakes lose legs to try to prove or disprove the Bible. And it's all an exercise in stupidity. That's harsh. I shouldn't say that. It's all an exercise in futility because it's not what the text says. This is a curse. This is in poetic language. That's why your Bible probably puts it in poetry format. Cursed are you above all the livestock, all the wild animals. It's almost as if God's saying, just like your namesake, just like the thing you've chosen to inhabit in order to bring about all of this, the snake, you're going you're gonna to be just like that spiritually, like it is physically. You're going to crawl around on your belly. You are going down, is what he's saying to this entity known as the serpent. So again, this is not explaining why snakes crawl around. It's not even explaining why people and snakes don't like each other, as others have read into it. The text itself is not making any of those claims. This is using poetic, hyperbolic, symbolic language in a cursed pronouncement, in a poetic format. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your, and here's the first time we come to, well, maybe the second time, but this is the key time that this word is used, and between your seed and hers. Genesis 3.15, this is one of those verses that you should highlight, underline, circle, whatever it is in your Bible so that it is always front and center because this is the first promise of the seed that's going to unpack for the rest of Genesis. Genesis uses this word seed, and it's translated as offspring in the NIV, which is unfortunate. I mean, yeah, it can mean offspring. It's not like that's a wrong translation, but that translation obscures how frequently this word appears throughout Genesis, and this seed promise is the thread that winds its way all the way through the book, and not just Genesis, but all the way through the entire Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. So there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's seed offspring and the woman's seed offspring. So does that mean that, that, that this is why people don't like snakes anymore? No, snakes are not the offspring of the serpent. Jesus is going to talk about this in the Gospels when the Jewish leaders are rebuking him and calling him from the devil. And, they're, and he's, they're saying, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus is going to say, Abraham's not your father. Your father's the devil. Because you're acting like, who you act like is who your father is. Whose faith you possess is who your father is or whose offspring you are. <clears throat> and so this seed of the serpent is going to manifest itself in those who do the will of the serpent, those who follow the serpent, those who are serpent-like rather than God-like throughout history. And the seed of the woman is going to always be at enmity. There's always going to be uh, uh, hostility between those who are of the serpent and those who are the image of God. And so we think, okay, well, this is just a promise of general humanity. No. Look at the next verse, or the next part of the verse. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. He, 
So this seed, which means offspring, and it's a collective word, it can mean one or it can mean a bunch, like our English words fish or sheep, uh, or our word offspring. It can mean one or it can mean many. And there's an intentional wordplay going on here. But what the next part of the verse says is one, this one particular seed, this he, singular, seed of the woman, will crush not the head of the offspring of the serpent, but will crush your head. He's talking to the serpent. So this is the first promise in the Bible of a coming deliverer from the line of humanity. This is not going to be an angelic deliverer. This is not going to be a, a spiritual entity. This is going so, defeat of the serpent will come from one who is born of the woman. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, the seed of the woman, his heel will be crushed by the serpent. This is just a mysterious image. At this point in the text, the idea is that uh, crushing the head is a mortal wound. You don't survive your head getting crushed. And, and there's also some imagery here because that's how one of the ways that people would kill snakes is to you know crush their head, cut off the head, crush the head, hit the head. You know, if you if you take out the head, the rest of the snake is harmless; it dies. And so there's there's a visual illustration in all of this, but applying it to the serpent, to to the tempter, to the primeval uh, evil, <laughs> primeval evil. It's a mortal blow. A seed of the woman will strike a mortal blow against the serpent. But in the process, the seed of the woman will experience a wound. Getting, getting struck on the heel is not a mortal blow, but it does hurt. Having your heel crushed, you're going to limp for a while. So in the defeat of evil, the serpent, the seed of the woman will be wounded. Not killed, but wounded. There's a reason later Christians looking back on the events of the cross and the resurrection, and Jesus, who he claimed to be, and all of his association with the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. Uh, there's a reason they look back on that this passage, and they go, huh, this is the beginning of the promise. This is the proto-euangelion, or proto-evangelion, the first gospel. Now, you can't say from this, you can't point to this and go, see, Jesus, you need a whole lot more stuff that's going to happen in order to get from here to Jesus. But you are, this is the seed, pun intended, this is the seed, the beginning of what will continue to grow and expand into the Messianic Davidic promise of the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment, according to the gospel authors, in the New Testament. And so Paul will say, just as sin entered the world through one man, and all became sinners because all sinned. So God's grace has entered through the other man, through the second Adam. He talks in, in the book of Romans, Paul puts Jesus as Adam 2.0, the one who got it right where Adam went astray. Sin entered the world through the first Adam. Sin is defeated through the second Adam. All of this is the, is the thread that ties biblical theology together. And it's all here in seed form, literally and metaphorically speaking. 
So Genesis 3.15 is a massively important verse in the Bible. Massively important. Because it portrays, it declares that, that evil will be defeated. It will be defeated ultimately and completely. Your head will be crushed. And it will be done so by the seed of the woman. Not in a general sense of offspring of the women, all of them. But as Paul will say to the Galatians, seed as in singular, one, Jesus, the Messiah. So all of this unfolds through the rest of the Bible, beginning here in Genesis 3.15. So he's spoken to the serpent, doesn't give the serpent a chance to speak, pronounces judgment. He does what, what Adam should have done, which is judged the serpent and condemned him right there. Then he turns to the woman. So let's get back to the woman. He goes in reverse order now. He, he, he asked the man, then he asked the woman, then he spoke to the serpent. Now he's going to ask the woman or speak to the woman and he's going to speak to the man. So it's this cool like chiastic uh, approach. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So now, what should have been a pain-free uh, or, or process becomes a dangerous and a painful process because of humanity, because of the woman leading the man astray. Part of her judgment is, yes, your seed, the seed of the woman, will bring about the downfall of the serpent. But that seed actually coming into the world, the birth process, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be pain. And <clears throat> this is one of the things that people would have wondered about in the ancient world. Why is this beautiful event of giving new life that's seen as such a blessing? It's, sun, it's seen as a way that we actually carry on the image of God. Why is it so dangerous? Why is it so painful? And this Genesis takes it all back to the garden and says that's where it all started is things went off the rails and all of uh, humanity and everything we know about bringing forth a life is now shrouded in pain. It won't always be this way, but it is how it is for now. And this phrase, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's a fascinating word, desire. You can circle that because it's only used two other times in the Bible. It's used in the next chapter when, it, when God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door and sin desires Cain, but Cain is to rule over it. So it's kind of a, an inversion of this. And then it's never used again, this word, teshuka, desire. It's never used again until Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. The climax of the Song of Solomon, pun intended, is this celebration of idyllic, Edenic coming together of the man and the woman. That's why there's so much Eden imagery in Solomon. And the, the, the woman says, I am my beloved's, his desire is for me. And so what you have in the song is a reversal of this state. Because what this state, what, what this curse pronouncement is showing is that the uh, woman's desire will be for her husband. And whether that's good, like a desire to just a longing, or whether it's a desire to, to own, to take, as it is in Genesis 4. There's some debate on that. But either way, the woman will desire the husband, 
but the husband will rule over. And, and this is, we see this in patriarchal cultures around the world, that, that humanity, that part of the, the result of sin, one of the other results of sin is the concept of men ruling over women. Patriarchy, misogyny, that's a, con, that's a, that's a result of the fall. That's a result of sin. That's not the way it was intended to be in creation. And so, you know, some strains of feminism are right in what they're pointing out, in what they're critiquing. Now, they may go wrong in the terms of how they think that should be dealt with or what they think should replace it. But the idea that, that like power patriarchy where men ruling over women is wrong is a very biblical concept. Because it shows that that is part of what went wrong in creation. And later, all of the laws and all of the um, guidance that God's going to give earthly Israel is going to be pushing back against that, even from within a system of patriarchy, until you come to the New Testament when you see Jesus elevating women to the status of, of equal with his male followers. And even more so when the first evangelists are women, the first witnesses of the risen Jesus are women. Um, so there's a whole, you can, you can follow if you ever, well, uh, we'll get into more of that later. That's another topic. But this is showing that, that the enmity is not just between the seed of the woman and the serpent, but also between the woman and the man. What should have been that teamwork, that unity, that Azer deliverance relationship because of sin is now fractured and it's become an adverse relationship in some regard. And that's one of the things that, that will be manifestly evident throughout the rest of the Bible and through the rest of human history, not even in the Bible. Now he turns to Adam. Verse 17. By the way, if you want to know more on that desire concept, go to discipledojo.org. Click on our videos and go to the to know and be known, forming a thoughtful Christian sexual ethic. That's one of the video series. And we do three sessions. Each one's about 30 minutes on the Song of Solomon. And we actually talk about this key concept of how the song is depicting idyllic, uh, a putting right what went wrong back in the garden. So Song of Solomon is kind of giving longing for that to be restored. So go check that out, discipledojo.org. Uh, click on the video resources and to know and be known is the, the image. It's, it's the graphic that's got Adam and Eve on the picture. But back to this, because we've only got about 10 minutes. And finally, he gets back to the man. To Adam, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now, they had not been eating from the, the sweat of their brow at this point. They had been eating from any tree in the garden that they wanted. Food was not a struggle because they were surrounded by lush, uh, uh, fruitful environment, literally. But the later readers who lived in the ancient Near East were not surrounded by that. And they had to toil to get their food. And that was one of the main things that humanity focused its energy on is, is making food, eating, not dying. And so the question that the ancients would have had is, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to eat? And this is one of the things that the Hebrew 
Genesis account points them back to and says, well, it wasn't always that way. At least it wasn't intended to be that way. But because of this disobedience, because of the crown of creation, the one who was given the mandate to go forth, to subdue the earth, to fill it, to multiply, to rule over the fish of the air, I mean, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, because of that, that the one who was in charge of it all went astray, that had a trickle-down effect. That had a ripple effect through all of creation. And that's part of why things are the way they are. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. So instead of producing fruit trees, there's going to be more thorns and thistles, which aren't edible and which are weeds, basically. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. Until you return, until Adam returns to the Adamah, you're, you will toil. It will be the opposite of what life in a garden, uh, lush environment is. It'll be the complete opposite of that. Until you return from the, to the ground. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so this is a reversal of the creation of man. This is a, you know, Adam was formed from the dust of the earth and God breathed into him. He became a living soul is how the text describes it. So now literarily, this is like an undoing of that. And, and so we see that the serpent was wrong after all, that, that on the day that they ate of it, they did die. Spiritually, they were separated from God through their sinfulness. Physically, they're going to be separated from God or geographically speaking, and also ontologically. Instead of living and eating of the tree of life and living continuously and, 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 and experiencing ongoing fellowship, they're actually going to revert back to their state of dust, decay, back into the earth. They're going to die. And so this is a pronouncement of death on the day they ate of it. So God wasn't lying. You hear sometimes people say, well, the serpent... He was telling the truth. They didn't die. They did die. That death had outworkings that would go for the rest of their life. They didn't die on that day in the most literal crass sense, but in even greater, deeper sense, they absolutely died. And ultimately, their fate was set on the trajectory of being decreated, going back into the earth. So this is the pronouncement. This is, this is the curse of what God's saying. Because you've done this, this is the new reality. If you want to live a life apart from me, this is what it's going to be like. If you want to live apart from the one who set everything up, who, who provides for, who cares for, the, the master architect, if you the, the one who created you, if you want to turn and rebel against him and go your own way, go your own way. But this is what it's going to look like. And you've set yourself on that course, so this is what's ahead. But even in that, remember back to the curse on the serpent. Even in the curse, there was a promise of restoration because God promised this, this can't get lost. This cannot get lost. That's why it's at the beginning of this section. In the curse, there was a promise of deliverance. There was a promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
That doesn't negate the curse, though. That doesn't negate the reality of sin in the now. But it does give us something to look forward to in the future as we deal with the present. There's tons of lessons theologically and ethically that we could draw from this, and you could literally spend a semester on Genesis 1 through 3. In fact, at Gordon-Conwell, if you took Meredith Klein's Old Testament Theology of the Pentateuch class, you would spend the whole semester on Genesis 1 through 3 um, because there's so much here that sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. But we've only got five minutes. So, <clears throat> verse 20, after this. Adam named his wife Chava, so Eve, but Chava in Hebrew, because she would become the mother of all the living. Chava kind of sounds like Chaya, and so maybe there's a wordplay. Eve sounds like living, um, but there's some debate about what exactly this wordplay is. Verse 21, God's not done. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So they clothed themselves, their shame, with fig leaves. God doesn't erase their shame. Sin has entered the world. Shame is a real part of human existence now. But what God does is say, but I am, I'll give you covering that will actually temporarily last. I'll, I'll give you covering in the meantime. These fig leaves you're stitching together is not going to cut it. And so God creates garments of skin. Now, some have seen in this, and this is maybe a little bit of a stretch. I think it might be there, but it's it's not explicit in the text. But some have seen in this, where did God get garments of skin? He must have killed animals. And so because of sin, animal life was taken, and this is the beginning of what would be the sacrificial system. And then there's sermons that spin off from that about the blood of Jesus covering sin, and maybe... I'll just say maybe. I'm not saying that that's impossible, but the text doesn't really get into the whole blood issue here. It just says God made garments of skin. It doesn't even say he took it from an animal. He could have just made garments of skin. We don't know. Uh, it's interesting. It's worth pointing out. Chew on it. Mull it over. Uh, take it for what it is. The Lord God made garments of skin in his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said... Adam, the man, has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. How? Because he's experienced it. He's now experienced evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So now we see that humans weren't created immortal. Humans may have gone on and lived and died unless they ate from the tree of life. And so part of the, 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 the life-giving nature of God was instilled in creation to continue on and to give life. Um, so there's a lot you could unpack this uh, and draw from it. But again, it's, it, it, just hold with loose hands these tantalizing bits of what-ifs that the text throws our way in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, but what if humans had eaten in their fallen state of the tree of life and were able to continue eating from it, then they would go on living forever, but in their fallen state. They would go on living forever with knowledge of good and evil, experiential knowledge. They would go on living forever in a cursed state. And so God removes that, removes them from that. He says, so the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden 
to work the ground from which he had been taken. Remember, he had been created outside of Eden from the ground, from the Adamah, created and then put in Eden. Now he's sent out. He's sent back from whence he came, back to where toil and futility and death and decay are the norm, whereas in the garden they weren't. And had the garden continued to spread as humanity spread out in God's image, in righteousness, not in sin, then the whole world might have become an Edenic paradise. But instead, they're sent back to where they were taken from, away from the garden, away from God's presence. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, cherubim. Uh, not, don't think of fat, naked baby angels, okay? Cherubs are not chubby and rosy-cheeked. Um, cherubim are, are fierce and mighty and warriors. People are terrified when they encounter them. And God placed this guard. Remember, man, Adam, was to guard the garden, to work it and to guard it. Now he has forfeited that. So he has banished he and the white woman are banished, and God puts in place a cherubim to guard, a warrior to guard, to keep them from coming. With a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard, there's that word again, the way to the tree of life. So in this stage, at this point, humanity, whatever, wherever they go, they will not make it back to Eden. They can't, paradise cannot be regained geographically. Um, they are outside in the world, but they're not sent out naked. God pronounced judgment, but then there's a measure of grace by clothing them, giving them garments that will help them survive. But they are going to experience life at a distance from God. And this is where that first, that separation between God and humanity begins. It begins in the garden and it's going to grow over the next six chapters of Genesis. That separation is going to continue to widen until all of humanity are separated from God. And God's going to call one family, starting with this guy, Abram, to be the link between God and all the nations. That's where this is headed. Uh, we, talk about a, we talk about that a lot in Bible for the rest of us. So discipledojo.org, click on the video section, click on Bible for the rest of us, and watch the videos about the story of the Old Testament, and you'll see what we're, what we're getting at.